0: Hello, this is Gary Wells, and you are listening to The American Farewell. Episode 5, it's a hot take episode, The Truth About Guns in America. It's Friday, the 27th of May, 2022. We are bumping this week's planned podcast, where we were going to address the issues with a representative government and use current events to take on one of the most divisive issues in this nation, guns. Why do we have them? Who should have them? Is there something we're missing in the debate about guns? We'll go through these questions and more on today's podcast. Before we jump in, though, we want to explain that this podcast series is intended to get people to think about what's going on in our country, to get people to look at various issues from multiple standpoints, even if that means getting you out of your comfort zones. Often, there is humor injected into these podcasts to keep the brain hopping. If there is anything within this particular podcast which appears to be an attempt at levity, please understand that the American Farewell podcast is not belittling or dismissing the very real loss of human life. We are just using all of the tools of communication at our disposal to advance the discussion over guns. This issue in particular tends to lead people into either emotional strains of irrational thought or logical loops that never really reach a solution. In other words, some people get so stuck in dwelling on the particular stories of gun violence that they cannot come to terms with what is a realistic goal, while other people get so hung up on winning a pseudo-debate that they are unwilling to allow different measures to be explored or even discussed. This topic can get really, really depressing and frustrating. Humor can pull us back out of the muck so that we can continue to address the issue in a constructive way. Now, on to the truth about guns in America. To begin, let us recognize that weapons have been a part of the human experience pretty much since the beginning. Early humans left behind evidence that... Once they realized they could make tools, they figured out that some tools were really good at killing things. A lot of the old prehistoric cave paintings show humans using weapons while hunting for food or for warding off predators. These purposes, hunting and defense, form the basis for the rationale behind all weapons, including guns. It's pretty difficult to argue against these purposes even today. However, We should keep in mind that these rationales share a common end result, to allow the user to kill. These are not devices which grant the ability to deflect attacks, and they don't lend healing qualities to the user. Weapons are devices which allow one to inflict harm on another living thing. They are tools for aggression. Initially, such weapons would have been used predominantly against animals. However, the earliest recorded histories from pretty much any culture describe the use of weapons to fight other humans. We stopped using them just for hunting or defense against a predator a long time ago and started using weapons for more considered purposes, like intimidation and conquest. Obviously, since we have collectively been doing this for thousands of years, This is not something we're likely to get out of our system until everything is monitored and controlled by something that does not have feelings or the human version of reasoning. In other words, we're going to keep using weapons until the robots take them from us in the future. In reviewing human history, it is easy to see that the earliest weapons were handheld items which were more or less extensions of the power of the aggressor. Although a weapon made it more feasible for a smaller person to cause harm to an opponent, it was still a fact that larger, more powerful people were the real danger when it came to wielding weapons. That is why some of the earliest myths include characters like Gilgamesh, Samson, and Hercules. Big strong guys who could smash things real good with a club or a jawbone. Even the use of spears and javelins were dependent largely on the upper body strength of the person wielding them. Then, humans figured out how to shoot projectiles through the air for lethal effect, with weapons like slings and bows. These were great equalizers. Suddenly, legendary characters were just kids, like David against Goliath, or heroines like Artemis and Athena. Having the capacity to kill an opponent from a distance made a significant difference in the tide of history. Invaders who could shoot arrows while riding a horse or from a chariot gave a lot of leverage over any foot soldiers who were armed only with spears and swords. This holds true even today. Someone armed with a gun has an advantage over anyone who does not have a gun. When it comes to the history of guns, you may already know that the chemical mixture, which was the earliest version of what we refer to today as gunpowder, was discovered and developed in China over a thousand years ago. Yes, I know, I said China. Let's try to keep on track here. Back then, the chemical mixture was tried for a variety of purposes. Then, in the 12th century, weapons described as fire lances were used to shoot projectiles. Eventually, these were minimalized into so-called hand cannons. The wide-ranging Mongols spread the knowledge of these items to the Muslim and European realms, In the centuries that followed, improvements on guns and gunpowder were inevitable as humans were always looking for ways to make everything more efficient. Even so, these early gun-like weapons were large, had limited accuracy, had to be reloaded in a messy process, and were not especially practical. The contemporary design for what we would recognize as a gun today started in the late 15th century, just in time for the European age of exploration around the world. Spanish, English, and Dutch control over large empires didn't happen just because they were better administrators. They had guns. And germs, of course. Biological agents are actually much more potent than any gun. But again, we're talking about guns here. Like the invaders of ancient times, the armies with better long-range weapons almost always won. By the time we get to the American colonies... Gun ownership was a pretty common thing for people living in what was considered the frontier of the English Empire. Guns were used for hunting game and protection against the threats, both real and imagined, of natives and robbers. This is directly connected to the earliest uses of weapons, hunting, and personal defense. However, colonials were also expected to keep arms in case they were called upon to be a member of the local militia, The colonies did not have a standing army until themselves. They relied on armed citizens to rally in times of need where British troops were not available, or to fight the British troops. Let's stop there. We should take a review of the rationale for, the actual wording of, and the interpretation of the Second Amendment. At the time that the Constitution was written, Colonials had been agitating against the crown and his royal governors. In retaliation, the king started placing restrictions on the colonial's ability to foment rebellion. Were arms ever fully banned and removed? No, this does not appear to be the case. Colonial agitators were able to succeed at rebellion because they were able to field an army of armed citizens. In other words, they still had their guns. Nobody ever took them away. And the Colonials codified the ability to carry a gun into the Bill of Rights for that reason. People who look through the writings of the Founding Fathers will see some of the same arguments then as we hear today. Namely, that a population that is unarmed is potentially subject to tyrants, and an individual who is unarmed is potentially at the mercy of criminals. Let's take a stab at that right now. These arguments are predicated on the fear that something might happen to you if you are not armed. Fear, by definition, is an emotional response to a perceived threat. The reliance on fear as the foundation for any logical argument is weak and childish and has very little do with reality. Unfortunately, fear is an easily applied motivator even though it often drives people to illogical extremes in a debate. Let's honestly look at the argument that ownership of personal firearms keep people free from tyranny. We'll address the point about guns being used for personal protection in the next podcast. In the late 1700s, it was true that the king was placing troops throughout America for the purposes of suppressing the colonials, However, that only happened as the Colonials started engaging in violent acts of rebellion. Once we broke away from England and solidified our split with the victory in the War of 1812, there was no longer a threat from that tyrant. The young American nation had a few bumps in the beginning, but then it got settled down and avoided the trappings of tyranny itself. Because of this adherence to freedom and democracy— It has been rare for troops to be used within our borders, and that was mostly during times of insurrection or exceptionally volatile civil disturbances. In the past 200-plus years, the federal government has not sicked the army on anyone just to take away our freedoms. There has been no broad suppression of rights, unless you still think the South should be free from the United States. That's not a problem with tyranny, that's a problem with your wounded cultural pride. The point here is that we have been free from actual tyranny since the beginning. As an aside, it helps to recognize when there is actual tyranny and when people are crying tyranny to gain points with their followers. Tyranny is when the government tells you what you can and cannot do across the board. Tyranny is not being given a set of public health advisories to follow in public when a dangerous virus is being spread around. If you thought that was tyranny, you are either a simpleton or an agitator who is just looking for a reason to stir things up. You know it, and everyone else knows it. The fact that we have not faced actual tyranny has nothing to do with the fact that there were a lot of guns among the greater population. The fact is that to establish a tyranny every person involved in such a system of oppression would have to be in agreement with the plan to suppress citizens' rights. In other words, the members of the army or Marines or National Guard or whoever would have to agree to follow such orders. This should come as no surprise to anyone, but soldiers and law enforcement officers are staunch defenders of the Second Amendment. They are not going to agree to orders from above to take away your privately owned guns. It's just not going to happen. What proof do we have that orders of tyranny will not be followed here in America? Well, there are reports that in very recent times, people high up in government refused orders or directives that would, in their minds, be in conflict with the Constitution and basic human rights. Such dangerous and callous orders From an overheated loser were just ignored. That's the reality here in America folks, no tyranny, just people who love freedom. Since there are no examples to be had here in America, proponents of this theory that guns are needed to defend against tyrants will point to events like the Nazi takeover in Germany or the Soviet control over Russia and Eastern Europe. Under those regimes, private gun ownership was restricted except for people loyal to the cause. The pro-gun proponents will cite the actions of these tyrannical governments as evidence that it could theoretically happen here. What this argument consistently neglects is that the historical and cultural framework around those parts of Europe in the early to mid-20th century are not at all what we have in America today. Germany, trying to recover from the losses imposed on it after World War I, and the Soviet Union in the waves of revolution after the removal of the Tsar, are not at all comparable to the U.S., which has enjoyed peaceful democratic transition in all levels of government for over 200 years. It's utter nonsense to make this comparison, demonstrating a lack of understanding of recent European history. You can also easily point to all of the other nations of Europe and the industrialized parts of the world which have not had tyrannical dictators ruling over them in the past century, even though these countries also restrict private gun ownership. In other words, there is no evidence in the industrialized world that the mere absence of an armed citizenry necessarily leads to tyranny. That's just fear-mongering through a poorly thought-out argument. Another point that must be made here is that at the time of the American Revolution, the ragtag militias of the colonies were not that far off in capacity from the English Army. We know this is true because we beat the English Army. But fast forward 250 years, and the capacity of the U.S. military has far outstripped the capacity of average citizens to defend against federal troops. If the federal government and all of its armed forces did turn to tyranny, your little home arsenal is not going to stop a missile from a drone or a barrage of rocket propelled grenades launched from behind a secure barrier. Look at what happened at Waco and Ruby Ridge in the nineties. Armed citizens who were deemed as threats by the U S government were dealt with in a very short time. Then what happened? Well, The U.S. federal agents stopped what they were doing and went back to their bases. No further suppression of rights after that. Now let's address the wording of the Second Amendment. As we already mentioned, the colonials were living in a region that was exposed to attacks by natives or the French or the Spanish or bands of criminals. The Crown did not expend troops in the numbers needed to secure its own territory. Therefore, each community of the colonies really did rely on their members to be available to defend the community from all threats. That is what the militia was for, and this is why they needed to be armed. There was very little talk early on among the colonials about the need to arm oneself against tyranny until the desire to break from the crown was rising. As mentioned in a previous podcast, this desire was fueled by the reality that the king was ignoring the colonies, not because he was exercising tyrannical tendencies to satisfy his own narcissistic needs. The colonies had to fend for themselves. That is the reality behind the formation of militias within the colonies. So, when the Colonials drafted the Constitution, they included, in Article I, Congress's ability to call forth the various state militias to serve the federal government. Then, in Article II, they set the President to be the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. Finally, the Bill of Rights Amendment 2 reads as follows, quote, A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed, period. In other words, the militias, which already existed in the colonies, could be called up by Congress and commanded by the president, but they had to have the right to be equipped in a way to make them useful. Otherwise, there would be no reason to have a militia under the control of the federal government. They would be pretty useless if they did not hold and bear arms. If you are one of those people who want to make the argument that the first two segments of this amendment are irrelevant and just a sort of typo on a document which you otherwise hold as sacred, then you are being intellectually dishonest. Come on, we can all read what's there. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. It is an undeniable historical fact that that the colonies created militias for communal defense in the absence of protection by British troops. Members of the militia became the foundation of the U.S. Armed Forces when the time for revolution came. Then what happened? Many of the members of the militia went back to their various states. They became the foundation for the National Guard units under the command of their respective governors, as they were before the revolution. And the governors have since used these troops, for the most part, only to secure communities during periods of extreme civil unrest and during times of natural disasters. Although there were times when certain governors called forth their National Guard to try to prevent the federal government from ensuring the civil rights of all citizens, they were never called out in the past because the federal government came to take away anyone's liberties. But we're not done with the Second Amendment, folks. People on the other side of the gun debate often want to diminish or eliminate the wording of the second half of the Second Amendment. They say that there should not be an absolute right to bear arms. Although they can reasonably point to the evolution of guns beyond anything that the Founding Fathers would have been familiar with, it is still a point contrary to one of the basic functions of a weapon. The right to protect oneself, including bearing arms, goes all the way back to prehistoric times. It is natural for any human to want to ensure their safety and the safety of their loved ones using whatever means available. As contradictory as it may sound, the willingness to inflict harm for the sake of protecting what you care about is a demonstration of love that you feel for someone. You would do anything to stop a predator from going after your child, right? If it's a wolf or a cougar, you're going to do everything within your power to drive it off. The same is true of human predators. If you catch a known pedophile with your child, your willingness to commit grievous harm will be through the roof, which is a natural response, but it is also an emotional response. And that's where we really start veering off into a discussion that resolves nothing. Trying to eliminate an age old practice of using weapons for personal defense is going to go nowhere. Now, The argument could be made to curtail the capacity of weapons to do harm. After all, if you really only need a weapon to defend yourself from attack by one or a handful of assailants, or if you're just going hunting, you're only going to need as much ammo as would be required to drive off or otherwise eliminate the attacker or to bring down your target. Trying to claim self-defense as the reason you need a weapon that could fire 30 or more rounds per minute with cartridges that can easily be switched out in a matter of seconds, is more than a little unreasonable. If we are being honest, you want weapons that can do a lot of damage because you still harbor fantasies of stopping an enemy army. Again, that's not going to happen. And it's a little unsettling that you want to have the capacity to kill a lot of people in a short time as a private citizen. However, since so many people harbor these fantasies, gun manufacturers, you knew I was eventually going to get to you, didn't you, will do whatever they need to do to meet that demand. Regardless of the ethical implications of arming hundreds of thousands of citizens with more firepower than the average policeman, there are people who want to make money by distributing such weapons to whoever is willing to pay for them. What we end up with then Is hundreds of thousands of unregulated and untracked weapons in the hands of people who, for the most part, are not part of any well-regulated militias. If any, some of these people are poorly regulated in their own lives. Eventually, weapons end up in the hands of people who intend to cause harm. Believe it or not, criminals do not typically manufacture guns themselves. They steal them from lawful gun owners or buy them from lawful gun owners in the secondary market. It is ridiculously easy for a person to acquire a lethal weapon online or through friendly contacts. And that's just acknowledging the actions taken by criminals. A lot of the people who use a gun to commit murder start off as, quote, law-abiding citizens, end quote. But that law abiding part ends in a split second when an innocent person is put within the gun sights and the trigger is pulled. Which brings us to the fact that guns are the weapons of choice for many people who have the intent to commit a crime. Are they the only weapon ever used in the commission of a crime? No, of course not. There are many, many things that can be used as a lethal weapon. In the comic books, A well-thrown ace of spades can be used to kill someone. But the reality is that guns are specifically designed to cause tremendous amounts of harm from a distance with little effort, which is why people purchase it for self-defense, right? You don't have people saying, I'm afraid of crime, so I'm going to carry a kitchen knife. Or there's someone I know who might come after me, so I'm going to drive around in my car and try to hit them with it if he threatens me. No. If you are afraid, you buy a gun because of how easy it can inflict mortal damage to a person who you think deserves it, which is the exact same mentality that a criminal has when they acquire a gun. We're going to stop there for now. In our podcast next week, we'll be looking at the truth about murderers in America. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that we gave you some things to consider. You have been listening to The American Farewell with Gary Wells. Until next time, keep dreaming, America.